Let's read Matthew 4. I'm going to start in in chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 4, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll talk through the the verses together. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now, when he, that is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went, and he lived in, in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned, end quote. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, while while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending their nets, and Jesus called them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23, and he, that is Jesus again, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, let's, let's pray before we talk through these verses. Now, Father, as we, as we spend these next moments studying and and Thinking through these verses, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Father, as we encounter the person and work of Christ, the ministry of the King in these verses, I pray that you would grant us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ for us that surpasses all knowledge. Lord, I pray that we may be filled with all the fullness of God by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so, so if you're, you're a visitor with us, th- this is the time of the service where we, we study God's word. And so we've, we've just read the passage that we're going to study. And next week, Lord willing, we'll start in chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll, we'll go through verses 1 through 12 next week. So we, we pick a, a passage and we, we study it, then we pick the next one and study it. And so th- this morning, we're going to look at verses 12 through 25. And, and to help us in our, our study, um, I, I, I provide an outline. And so the outline will be up on the screen And the outline is basically three sections. And so we're going to see the ministry of the king in these three different sections. And so we see first the ministry of proclamation, and that's going to be verses 12 through 17. And then second, we'll see a ministry of discipleship there in verses 18 through 22. And then finally, the the last section, verses 23 through 25, we'll see that it was a ministry of words and works. Okay, so there's, there's the outline. There's the three sections, proclamation, discipleship, and words and works, and we'll work through that together. So let's start there, verses 12 through 17. If you look there, verses 12 through 17, we see a ministry of proclamation. 
And so as you look at this first section, if you haven't been with us through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has a, has a geographical emphasis. And so we started this story in Bethlehem, and, and that's where Jesus was born. And then he, he flees, his father and mother take him as a toddler to Egypt. And so Matthew wants us to follow this geographical um, travel of the Messiah. And then, and then he goes to Nazareth. And then in chapter 3, we, we see that Jesus now, uh, a, a gap of time, he's not a toddler anymore. Now he's a grown man and he's ready to begin his ministry. He goes out into the Jordan where, where this guy, this some would say a crazy man, was out in the wilderness baptizing. And so he goes out to the Jordan and he's baptized by this, this, this forerunner named John, who's actually a cousin of Jesus. And, and so from, from the Jordan, we saw last week, Pastor Will showed us in the beginning of chapter 4, where he then is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's tested and tempted by the great adversary, by Satan. And then after the, the testing in the wilderness, we pick up here in verse 12, where he is now moving to Galilee. And so Matthew wants us to note the geographic aspects of the ministry. And the significance of Galilee is that this is where he begins his public ministry. And Matthew wants us to know that, that Galilee is where it starts. He's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 9, later in verses 15 and 16. But in verse 12, he gives us the reason that he withdraws into Galilee to begin his ministry. So look there at verse 12. When he heard that John had been arrested. And so Jesus gets word that John, the, the forerunner, the baptized, is arrested. And when he hears that, he withdraws into Galilee. Verse 13 continues, And in leaving Nazareth, he goes and lives in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, all Matthew says about the, the arrest of John is that he's been arrested. Other Gospels give more details. We're not, we're not interested in that because Matthew doesn't mention those. If you want to know more about John's arrest, you can go into the other Gospel accounts. But at this point, all we know from Matthew is that John is arrested, and it's that arrest that causes Jesus to withdraw. And the reason, as we can imagine, is the hostility that's now surrounded John and his ministry. So, so for John to be arrested shows, okay, there's some hostility. Someone is, is out to get John and, and is, is out to prevent him from carrying out his ministry. And so as we saw earlier in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus and John are connected. The, the message is the same, and John is saying, hey, there's one coming, and Jesus is the one. And so the fact that John is now arrested, it makes sense that, that in light of this political hostility that now Jesus is, is, is withdrawing. He's withdrawing from this setting because of what's happened. And so that makes sense. But it also makes sense if we, if we step back from a larger perspective, in light of John's arrest, the, the job of the forerunner is now pretty much over. He's done his job. He's prepared the way. Now he's in jail. So he can't be out in the wilderness baptizing and preparing the way because he's in jail. And so he's not going to do his job anymore. His job is done and now that the forerunner is gone, that means that the Messiah has come. There's no need for the forerunner anymore. And so with, with John in jail, now it's time for Jesus to begin his own ministry. And so he withdraws, not, not just to go into hiding, but he withdraws into Galilee because that's exactly where he's going to begin his ministry. The messianic mission is going to begin in, Mal in Galilee. And Matthew wants us to know that, that Galilee, Capernaum, specifically these two names, Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew says that's where he goes. And these territories, Matthew would want us to know that these territories have a significant role in the history of God's people. And so Matthew's earliest readers would have been familiar with these two, uh, these two territories. 
And so if you're not familiar with it, the history of the Old Testament, these two names are names of, of two of the, 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 the 12 tribes. These are two names that, that were tied to the history of Abraham and Israel. And so these 12 tribes include Naphtali and Zebulun. In fact, Zebulun was one of Leah's sons, and then we have Naphtali, which was Rachel. Remember, Rachel couldn't have sons, and then she has two sons, and the second one was Naphtali. And so Jesus goes into those places. But that's not the significance that that Matthew wants us to know, that these were two of the the 12 tribes. He wants us to know, because he quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, that it is these two tribes and these allotted territory that Isaiah was writing about in the exile. And so it's the exile that, Math, that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 9. Because notice there in verse 13, or verse 14, Matthew says, Jesus withdrew so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus goes to these territories to fulfill something said by Isaiah. And Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. That, that's, that's Matthew's um, translation of, of that passage from Isaiah the prophet. Now, Isaiah chapter 9, you're, you're probably not familiar with verses 1 and 2 other than from this account. But later in Isaiah chapter 9 is a verse we all know in, in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, which is, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on, on his shoulders. He shall be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. The, that's the Christmas verse. Right, where we say, look at Isaiah promised the birth of Jesus to the virgin child in, in Isaiah 9, 6. Well, this is earlier up in that same passage, but it's messianic nevertheless. This is a messianic passage because the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9 that are quoted here in Matthew chapter 4 is Isaiah saying that people dwelling in darkness will see a great light. Now, if we go back into Isaiah, so we we rewind a lot of years into the exile. God's people, they lived in the land. They were given this land as as an inheritance. We're We're talking Old Testament. But they were unfaithful to the Lord. And so they were exiled. They were, they were captured. There, there was an Assyrian empire that comes in and they, they take over the land and they send a lot of the, the Jews back to Assyria. And some of them who are left are now in exile. And they're dwelling in darkness because not only are they without the temple, without the, the, their people, but now they're, they're Gentiles, Assyrians that have come in and now they're populating the land that was promised to the Jews, to the Israelites. And so foreign invaders have come in and invaded the promised land. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says, if you, if you go back, you can read this maybe later, later this week, but at the end of chapter 8, into chapter 9, there's this deep darkness and distress and gloom. It's a really heavy passage. But it's into that that chapter 9 says, but that's not always going to be the case in these exiled lands because a light has dawned in the land of the Gentiles. And so that's the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And what Matthew is saying is that Jesus goes to these places where it was said and promised and predicted that the light was going to dawn there, a light to the Gentiles. And Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, as a starting point for the ministry of the Messiah, it would have been puzzling. And so Matthew says it shouldn't be puzzling because that's what was promised about Jesus. That's why he starts there. You see, people would have said, well, why, why didn't the Messiah begin in Jerusalem, in the city center? Why, why would he go to this, this, this low, not, not well-known city or area or region of Galilee? And Matthew says, well, here's why. That's what, that, that was the plan all along. And so Matthew is justifying this questionable starting point. And he points to Isaiah 9 as the promise of light dawning in Galilee as the rationale. This is why 
Jesus starts here. This is why he goes to Galilee, because that's what was promised. As we think about that, the, the ministry of Jesus, it, it is exactly that, isn't it? The ministry of Jesus is a ministry of, of light dawning. It's a ministry that will involve those living in darkness seeing a great or beholding a great light, a ministry of hope to those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. In the ministry of Jesus, beginning in Galilee, light has dawned. And the goal of Matthew is to demonstrate that God's plan is the Gentile mission. He's going to the land of the Gentiles. And so Galilee, so often the underdog, both in political fortune and in the eyes of of these official Jewish religious leaders, this was destined to play a part, a crucial role, in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. That's where the Messiah was going to begin his ministry. And so it's a ministry of proclamation that light has come. That's what's proclaimed as Jesus begins his ministry here in Galilee. And and that's still the ministry of Jesus today, isn't it? Because although the times are different, and and although we are far removed from Jesus walking the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, this world that we live in is the world of the Gentiles. In the sense that the world is populated by those who by nature dwell in darkness. Those who by nature dwell in the region that's, that's overshadowed by death. And those who are by nature that way, it's not just others outside of us, that's, that's us. All of us, we were born in the land of darkness. You were born in the valley of the shadow of death because you're born a sinner. And I'm born a sinner. That is our dwelling place by nature. And it's in knowing this where we live and who we are, that we're able to see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in him and him alone in his ministry that hope has dawned for all of us. Me and you, light has dawned in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so just in terms of application, you should know this morning that light has dawned in Galilee of the Gentiles. On this point, one one famous preacher says, our Lord, talking about Jesus, courts not those who glory in their light but those who pine in their darkness he comes with heavenly life not to those who boast of their own life and energy but to those who are under condemnation and who feel the shades of death shutting them out from light and hope and he continues what a mercy that to those who dwell beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, that Jesus comes with power to enlighten and quicken. If I feel myself to be an out-of-the-way sinner, Lord, come to me and cause me to know that light has dawned even for me. The reality is that Jesus, the King, came to minister to those who dwell in darkness, to those who know that they dwell in darkness. And so I just want you to know this morning, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't haven't pledged your allegiance to this king, you are still dwelling in darkness. We've all dwelt there at one point or another, but some of us have, have turned from darkness to Christ. And if you haven't turned to Jesus, you're still dwelling in darkness. And so I just want you to know that, that you are not okay. You're not safe. The, the, the valley of the shadow of death is not a place that you should live. And so I just want you to know, do you, do you glory in your light? Are you, are you self-righteous and proud? I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm okay. I'm okay on my own. I can figure this out. 
I can make my way. I can live a good life so that then one day I die and I'll meet my maker and I'll be okay. My good outweigh my bad. If that's your thinking, you need to know you are, you are gravely mistaken. Only Jesus can save. Self-righteousness and pride are enemies of the king and his ministry. Christ indeed is a great savior. He's able to save all who would come to him. However, he doesn't save those who think they can save themselves. And so, so you, don't have, you don't need to get your life together. You don't need to do all these good things to, to make yourself presentable to the Lord. You come, and the only thing that he needs is for you to know your need of him. And so if you're here and you don't, you've never heard about Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus welcomes sinners who come to him. He, his arms are open wide. He is full of grace for those who would turn from their sins and come to Jesus. He's not going to reject you. The, the only one he rejects is the one who doesn't come because they're self-righteous and proud. And so Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. And so he proclaims, light has dawned in the darkness. But notice there's one more thing proclaimed, verse 17. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he also proclaims, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Matthew says, verse 17 is this transition from that time on. This is a transition marker. The, the time has changed. John's gone. Jesus is here. So up to this point, Jesus has been a largely passive figure in Matthew's story. But from this time, however, the situation has changed and Jesus is now taking the initiative. And now he's, he's heading out into his mission. And so John is in jail. Jesus is in Galilee. The time has come for the proclamation of the Messiah. And if you notice, if you're with us in previous weeks, the message is the same as that of John, isn't it? John proclaimed, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus says, repent, the kingdom is at hand. There's, there's unity within these two messengers. And so Jesus says, repent for it's now. Jesus calls for a decisive response. And it's in this arrival of the kingdom, the appearing of the king, that, that demands a response. So Jesus, all of his hearers, all those who would, who would follow him and listen to him, they were confronted with a response. They must repent and follow him. Now, I won't, I won't belabor this point because we covered it back in chapter 3, but John preached the same message, and that's of repentance. And the call to repentance, this is a, a, a comprehensive call. It involves a response of, of the total person. It's, it's not just a mental assent. To repent is for your life to change direction. And so Jesus says, if you want to be part of this kingdom, you have to change your direction. You have to turn from one way of living and go another way. Repentance that is required for entrance into the kingdom is a repentance that bears fruit. That's what he told the, the religious leaders back in chapter 3 the, that John the Baptist did. And so while John's message and Jesus' message are the same, they're both repent, John says, hey, wait, repent and wait for the one coming. Jesus says, no more waiting, I'm here, I'm the one, repent. The promised one has come, and so Jesus issues the same call, that for repentance, and he does so as the king with authority. The authority not only to demand repentance, but also the authority to demand allegiance. He's the one, the king, who says, hey, follow me, which is what we see next in verses 18 through 22. So, so we saw a ministry of proclamation, but also second section there in, in verses 18 through 22, we see it's a ministry of discipleship. And so in these, these verses, verses 18 through 24 of, of Matthew chapter 4, we're introduced to four of the original disciples. There's two sets of brothers, that, and, and we're told they're, they're calling stories, how, how their following of Jesus began. It's really similar to what, what Mark recounts in his gospel 
But, but in this passage, the, though there's two different sets of brothers, there's a, a pattern that's established. It's a clear pattern. And so, so notice at these verses, look there at verse 18. And we see this pattern. First, we see that there's this emphasis on Jesus, the king, seeing the disciples. So look there at verse 18. While walking by the sea, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Okay, so Jesus sees him. Look down to verse 21, second set of brothers, same, same pattern. Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Okay, so, so Jesus sees the disciples. That's step one. The initiative of this life-changing call, it begins with Jesus. Right? They're not saying, oh, oh, let me, let me go find the answers to life. Let me go find someone that I can follow and, and get my life together. No, they're minding their own business, and Jesus sees them. And that's the first step. He sets his gaze on them. And, and just to be clear, these men are not likely candidates for a revolutionary mission. So, so if you're starting a, a revolution, a, a mission that's going to overturn the world, these aren't men that you're looking for. These are just average guys, fishermen. I mean, one commentator says this, if the announcement of God's kingship in verse 17 might lead the reader to expect some dramatic development in world history, the character of these first recruits offers a different perspective. Four local fishermen do not sound like a world-changing task force. No offense to any fishermen here, but that, that's the reality of, of this cultural setting. He calls these four men to start. In fact, three of these four will be his inner circle for the rest of his ministry. And so he sees them, but, but there's a second step in this pattern that we see, and that's the call of the disciples. Verse 19. So he sees Peter and Andrew. Verse 19, he says, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. So that's the call. Follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Skip down to verse 20. Seeing James and John in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, he called them, okay? That's the call. He called them. He calls Peter and Andrew, and he calls James and John. And so that's the pattern. He sees them, and he calls them. And though verse 21 doesn't spell out the calling, we can assume it's the same thing. He sees them, and he calls them. He says, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so as Jesus begins his ministry in this fishing region, I don't think it's coincidental that the first four disciples are fishermen. He calls fishers of fish, and he says, follow me, and you're going to become fishers of men. And so again, this calling is going to necessitate a shift in priorities for these four men. They're going to be fishermen, but their catch and their purpose for fishing is going to totally change. Massive shift in job description is coming. I mean, there's a contrast, if you think about it, between fishing for fish and fishing for men. I mean, for the purpose of fishing for fish, you catch the fish to kill the fish, or at least in that time. They didn't just fish for fun in that time. They fished for food. So they, they fished to kill and to eat. So, so they're, they're gathering fish in nets, and, and these fish in nets are, are then killed and eaten. Well, Jesus says in fishing for men, you're going to catch them, but you're not going to catch them to kill them. You're actually going to catch them so that they might live. And so the nets, instead of leading to destruction, are actually going to lead to life and, and hope. And so Jesus sees them and calls them. And so we see here that, that the, the ministry of the king and, and the, the task in following the king is going to involve catching or fishing for men and women and boys and girls, not for the purpose of destruction or killing, but, but in order to be saved and to be given life. But there's a third thing in this, this pattern we see of this, this calling. So he sees the disciples, he calls them, and then third, notice there's the response. And the response is uniform. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
Verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So he sees them, he calls them, and then they respond. And the emphasis in both cases is the immediacy of their response. They obey right away. They, they, they hear the word and they say, okay. It, it, as, as a parent of young kids, this is how we want our kids to, to respond, right? Go brush your teeth and get ready for bed. Well, well, why? No, no, obey right away. These disciples, they hear the word and they go. They leave behind their stuff to follow the king. This is the nature of their response. They leave stuff behind. It's not just any stuff. This isn't insignificant stuff. They're leaving behind their, their work and their income. In James and John case, they're, they're leaving their father in the family business. And in both cases, these men immediately respond to the call of the king with radical sacrifice. And while things are, are, are different today, we aren't literally called to follow Jesus around the region of Galilee so, so I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that following him necessarily involves selling everything, quitting your job, and forsaking your family. It doesn't necessarily involve that. It may. But the truth remains that to follow Jesus, there is a total call on one's life. You either follow him or you don't. It's not a nine-to-five job. These men aren't just taking a day off from fishing. They're completely breaking with their previous way of life and devoting themselves to follow this king, the Messiah who's come. And with this call and with this decision to follow Jesus, their priorities have totally changed. And so I think we have a point of application here too, and, and we see the nature of the call of discipleship. And, and, and we see in this response the call of discipleship, the call of Jesus to those that would be saved is not simply repent and believe. That's where it starts but it's a call to follow me. You, you don't say, I repent, believe, and then just sit still and not do anything. You repent, believe, and in so doing, you follow the Messiah. And that, that calling, that, that decision to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, involves sacrifice. Your priorities change. Discipleship, following Jesus, involves submitting one's life and one's gifts and one's talents and one's hopes and one's dreams. You submit them to the Lord. You submit them to Jesus and you follow Jesus. You see, when we come to Christ, we make a declaration that our lives are no longer our own. We release control. We say, I don't chart my own course. I don't call my own shots. I don't determine my own path. I don't establish the way. That is his job and I'm following him. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You can't lead your own life and follow him. So, so God's not your co-pilot. Jesus isn't your co-pilot that says, hey, maybe you should do this. No, you say, you have it all. Like Jesus, take the wheel and I'm gonna get in the very back. That's what it means. And so I just want you, if you're here, if you're someone here who's put your faith in Jesus, if you're someone who's, who's turned from sin and, and decided to put your faith in Jesus and, and you've decided to follow him, I want you to know that in following Jesus, you are called to follow Jesus. The primary call of discipleship doesn't have to do with you helping someone else follow Jesus. That's part of it. The primary call of discipleship is about you following Jesus. And you following Jesus is about you totally, completely, radically surrendering, surrendering your life to him. I mean, of these, these four fishermen, this calling, Matthew and Mark both record this account, and, and they don't mention it in this language, but, but Luke's re recounting of this event, of these calling, the calling of these four, 
Luke chapter 5, verse 11 says this, that, that when they, they're called by Jesus, Luke says they left everything and followed him. So he didn't say, well, well, these guys left their nets and these guys left their dad and their boat. Luke says they left everything. And that is the call of discipleship. And since, since I assume that most of you here, those that have made a profession of faith, you've decided to follow Jesus, I just want this sermon at this point to confront you and to confront me and, and simply ask the question, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you follow him? I mean, think about your spouse. Think about your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, your coworkers. Do they know? Not, not just that you go to church. That, that's actually pointless, worthless. In fact, it could be more damaging than beneficial for some people. But do they know, does your life proclaim that you follow Jesus? In, in the way that you live, in the priorities that you set, do they know that you follow Jesus? The problem today is that so many want to give Christ virtually a tithe of their life. That is one-tenth. Okay, okay, I'll give you one-tenth of my life, but I'm, I'm going to keep 90% for myself. Jesus makes clear that, that such will not do. That that's not on the table for the follower of Jesus. I'm afraid that we've developed a severe misunderstanding of the Christian life because we tend to think about following Jesus in terms of what I do on Sunday mornings or in Sunday school or, or in a quiet time when I read my Bible and pray each week. That's not the Christian life. Following Jesus isn't something you can measure with a time clock. The call of God through Jesus is sovereign and absolute in its authority, and the response of those who are called is to be both immediate and absolute. When we follow Jesus, our lives change, our priorities change, our relationships change, and they change because we then are now aiming and striving and endeavoring, and when necessary, we're struggling to honor and obey Jesus in everything. It's who we are. It's our identity. And so the aim of the follower of Christ is either to obey Christ in all things, or it's not. You don't just say, well, I, won't obey in the, I, won't, I will obey in these times, but when I'm around these people, or when I'm doing this, I don't have to obey. No, the follower of Jesus, it's, it's our identity. We either follow him or we don't. That's the call of discipleship. Well, then finally, looking at verses 23 through 25, this last section, we see it's not a minute, only a ministry of proclamation and a ministry of discipleship, but finally we see it's a ministry of words and works. In these final verses, Matthew gives a brief overview, a summary or description of the type of ministry that Jesus engaged in while he was in Galilee. And we see that his ministry involved both words and works. It's kind of this dual-natured ministry. So look there at verse 23. I think this is a summary sentence of, of, of what his ministry looked like. Verse 23, and he went throughout all of Galilee, and notice what he's doing. He's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is the nature of his messianic ministry. He's teaching and proclaiming. That's the ministry of words, but he's also healing. That's works. It's words and works. It's dual-natured ministry. And so he teaches in the synagogues and he's proclaiming the gospel in the kingdom. And, and so if he's a Jewish teacher, he's a rabbi, he's got four followers now at least. And so it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't have been unheard of for a, a synagogue to say, hey, you're a, you're a Jewish rabbi. Why don't you come share with us our Sabbath lesson? And so he goes into the synagogues and he's teaching. 
And we, we get glimpses of what this would look like, where he says, I'm the, I'm the one. This prophetic message about the Messiah, well, well, it's been fulfilled in your hearing today. So when he's in the synagogues, he's teaching about the coming of the kingdom. But he's also going around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to whoever will hear. He's going all throughout the region proclaiming the gospel, teaching, proclaiming the, the kingdoms at hand. And so this is the, the, the words of the ministry. He's proclaiming a reality of, of what has happened. It's the words, and this is a, a major part of the ministry of Jesus. But it wasn't only a ministry of words. Notice in verse 23, it's also a ministry of works. He healed diseases and afflictions. And so he's going to proclaim the kingdom, but, but with, alongside of that, he's healing diseases and afflictions. And notice it's not just some diseases and afflictions. He's not doing triage, saying, no, 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 that's really bad. I can't help you. But hey, that's an easy one. I'll come. He, he's not trying to decipher, okay, what can, what can't I? Notice he heals every disease and every affliction. There's nothing he can't fix. In this summary statement, Matthew wants us to know that the ministry of the king involved a message, but also miracles. There's works that are accompanying the ministry of this Messiah. They're miraculous miracles. They're supernatural healings, and, and they're a crucial part of the ministry of Jesus. And what I think Matthew would want us to know, and, and, and in fact, how he, how he structures the entire layout of the Gospel of Matthew is he's, he, he intertwines like narrative sections of, okay, here's what he's doing, and then a huge section of teaching. The, these discourses, there's five of them throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, next week we'll see the, the start of one. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount that runs for chapters five, six, and seven. But Matthew, he organizes his very Gospel around teaching and, and ministry doing. So there's narrative and discourse, narrative and discourse. And that's because both are necessary. And they're connected. The words and the works go together. The, the works validate or give weight or cl give clarity to the words. They can't be separated. And so you can't have this, you can't want this and not have this. And one example would be Luke chapter 5. If you remember, if you're not familiar, what happens is this paralytic man is brought to Jesus by his friends. And do you remember at the end of that, that, that encounter, he eventually heals this paralytic man, but he does so because he says, that he says, your sins are forgiven. And people say, oh, only God can forgive sins. You can't do that. He says, okay, I'm going to heal him so that you might know, not that I have power to heal, but that you might know that what I said, that his sins are forgiven is actually true. And so he heals the man. And so the miraculous working of, of, of making a paralytic walk is done to say, I can actually forgive sins. Or, or in Mark's gospel, chapter one, fascinating, the end of chapter one, where Jesus, he's been healing many people and everyone's coming. The crowds are coming and he goes by himself to a desolate place early one morning and no one knows where he is. And Peter's like, hey, where, where's Jesus? All these people are coming. They, they want to be healed and we don't know where he went. And so, so Peter finds Jesus and says, hey, come on, teacher. Come on, there, there's a line. They're ready for you. And do you know what Jesus says to Peter? At the end of Mark chapter one, he says, it's time for us to go to the next town. Yeah, I know there's lots of people waiting, but we have to go to the next town that I may preach there. That's why I came to preach. It's a ministry of words. I came to preach. But do you know what he's going to do when he went to the other towns to preach? He went throughout all Galilee, Mark says, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so this word and works are, are both part of the ministry of the Messiah. The words were announcing the kingdom's at hand. It's here. And then the words are saying, what he says is true. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. 
And it's fascinating because when you think about this, I mean, think about the, the works. We, we live in a, in a world, in a culture where people are so infatuated with, with miracles. But here's the thing. No matter how amazing the miracle, then or now, I mean, think about Lazarus. Lazarus, John chapter, chapter 8, he, he's a man that dies that Jesus raises. That, I mean, you don't get much more miraculous than that. No matter how amazing the miracle is, the effects of that miracle were time-constrained. You know, we don't, we don't have the account there, but Lazarus died again. It's time-constrained. It's a, it's a miraculous miracle, but, but it's time-constrained. Which then forces us to ask, well, why the miracles? Why raise Lazarus? It can't be simply so that, so that his sisters get a, a few more years with him. Or, or so that the people aren't crying anymore. It's not to fix a, a, a situation temporarily. The point was so that those who see that might open their ears and say, oh, oh, I better listen to him. So that Lazarus in coming out of the grave might say, oh, oh I, I'm, I'm all in, Jesus. The words of the one who has the power to perform miracles ought to be heeded. His works proclaim that his words ought to be heard. The one who had the power to perform miracles was the one who was bringing the kingdom. And if you think about the, that time and culture, why did people think that there were diseases and sicknesses and sorrows and sufferings? I mean, Jesus' disciples themselves, in, in John's gospel, John says, I, I think it's chapter 4, um, but, but there's this account where there's this man born blind, and the disciples say to Jesus, hey, whose fault is it that he's blind? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? Who sinned? And so there's this worldview that says if someone is, is born with a disability or someone has a disease or someone's blind, it's a result of sin. That's what they thought, whether right or wrong. That was the, the worldview of the day, the, the, how people understood diseases and afflictions. And so this worldview helps us see the necessity of the connection between words and works. He healed Every disease and every affliction. There's no disease or ailment or demon possession that Jesus could not remedy, which proclaims loudly and clearly that with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of the King, not only are diseases and sickness, sorrows and sufferings being conquered, more importantly, or I would say most importantly, the perceived source of every disease, sickness, sorrow, and suffering was being dealt with. The king comes not just to, to deal with disease, but to deal with sin, the root cause of all suffering and sorrow and disease and affliction. And so Jesus' miracles dealing with every kind of ailment not only heralded the kingdom, but show that God had pledged through the Messiah to deal with sin at its root level. That's the kingdom coming. That's the end result of the king's ministry. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And he does so not primarily through works of healing, but through his sacrificial death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. This is why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. I've, I have authority now. I've conquered sin and death. And now I'm, I'm sending you out to go. And so as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 4, we, we see this, this, these healings, these works. His reputation is spread. And look there at verse 24. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, the afflicted with, with various diseases and pains, oppressed by demons, seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And so Jesus operating in this region, his reputation begins spreading far outside of the region. 
And so, so this ministry in Galilee is spreading to the Gentiles. It includes the Jews, but, but it's, it's among the Gentiles as well. And great crowds followed him, verse 25. And so as Matthew closes chapter 4, the scene is being set for what's coming in the, in, in the next coming weeks. So, so now he's got his inner circle, he's got four disciples, and now he's got an outer circle. People are coming to listen. And so we're going to see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 5, he, he's going to see the crowds, he's going to go up on a mountain, he's going give, to give a law, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and that's where we'll pick up next week. But here, as we come to the end of chapter 4, we see the Son of God who's been led into the wilderness. He's emerged as the obedient and faithful son who's, who's f- succeeded in, in overcoming the temptations of the evil one. He's come alone, and now he's withdrawn into Galilee, calling a core, this inner group, and now these external followers. And so the king is ready to begin his ministry.